0: Unity relaunches requests for a term loan amendment. PHI free falls into Chapter 11. CTI Foods also files for Chapter 11, but with RSA in hand. PG&E's PPA-related adversary proceeding belongs in the bankruptcy court, according to district court. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in re Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast where we each week bring you the latest top developments in high yield and distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City.
1: And I'm Connor Skelding. Later, Senior Editor Jason Sanjana speaks with Kirkland and Ellis' John Hennis on the one-day-long full-beauty prepack and the growing trend of very short Chapter 11 cases. It's Sunday, March 17th. On Thursday, REARC learned that Unity Group has relaunched its request for a term loan amendment and limited waiver. The relaunch followed resistance from an ad hoc group of lenders claiming to hold a blocking position, according to sources. The company is seeking lenders' permission to waive a potential event of default that would be caused by the inclusion of a going concern qualification as a result of the recent bankruptcy filing by Windstream in its annual report by auditor PwC. The revised amendment includes an increase in the loan's coupon to L plus 5% from L plus 3%, an increase in the consent fee to 125 basis points from 50, a tighter restricted payments basket, and a reduction in the period the going concern waiver covers to just 2018 versus 2018 and 2019 originally, according to a comparison of the most recent amendment and the prior version as reviewed by REORG. The amendment would also impose certain restrictions on the company, including a cap on cash dividends at the minimum amount required to maintain its REIT status. The lender group, represented by Wild Gottschall, had countered the company's initial proposal by seeking a 200 basis point coupon boost tighter debt baskets, including restricted payments, the addition of a leverage covenant, and a restriction to pay future dividends in-kind.
0: PHI Inc., a Lafayette, Louisiana-based helicopter services company, and several affiliates filed for Chapter 11 late Thursday in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of Texas. The company disclosed that it closed and fully drew on March 13th a $70 million term loan from Blue Torch Capital LP. The first day papers do not mention dip financing. The company stated in a press release accompanying the Chapter 11 filing that it, quote, is working to emerge from bankruptcy in the summer of 2019. In addition to the $70 million Blue Torch financing, the debtor's prepetition capital structure includes a $130 million working capital term loan from an affiliate of CEO Al Gosselin and $500 million of five and a quarter percent senior notes, scheduled to mature March 15th. The letters say that they are continuing to explore and pursue, quote, several restructuring alternatives, including, quote, ongoing negotiations with an ad hoc committee of five and a quarter percent noteholders on the formulation of a plan of reorganization which the company says it expects to file, quote, at the early stages of these Chapter 11 cases. The case has been assigned to Judge Stacy Jernigan. The first-day hearing has been scheduled for Monday, March 18th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: CTI Foods filed for Chapter 11 in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware on Monday morning. The debtors say they anticipate a $405.5 million reduction in funded debt at Emergence. In a press release on Monday, the debtors announced that Mike Bacari, most recently Chief Commercial Officer, had been appointed President and CEO effective immediately. The debtors entered into a restructuring support agreement last week with certain parties. As of the petition date, the RSA was supported by 79% of first lien term claim holders, 52% of second lien claim holders, and 94% of pre-petition equity holders, which includes supporting sponsors T.H. Lee and Goldman Sachs. By the time of Tuesday's first-day hearing, 84% of first lien claims and 75% of second lien claims had voted to accept the plan, according to debtors' counsel Matthew Barr of Weill Gottschall. The plan would add 97% of reorganized equity to first lien holders and the remaining 3% to second lien holders if they accept it. Damien Scheibel of Davis Polk, counsel to the ad-hoc group of first lien and second lien holders, noted that his group is working with the debtors on what the capital structure is going to look like at exit, but according to the first-day papers, funded debt post-restructuring would total $175 million. The proposed plan contemplates a roll-up of the dip term loan into an exit term loan. Judge Christopher Sanchi, who presided over the hearing, granted the debtors dip financing motion on an interim basis including all of the $80 million DIP ABL facility and $62.5 million in a DIP term loan facility. The debtors stated that they intend to request an additional $12.5 million under the DIP term loan at the final hearing. Judge Sanchi said that, quote, given the nature and current posture of the case, he was happy to grant the motion on an interim basis without any revisions to the order. He also granted the debtors related motion to seal the ABL dip fees, which the debtors disclosed are in the aggregate of $850,000 on the $80 million ABL dip facility.
0: It was again a very busy week in the PG&E bankruptcy. To start the week, the District Court agreed with Judge Matali's recommendation to keep the debtor's power purchase agreement-related adversary proceeding against FERC in the bankruptcy court. Judge Montali on Wednesday also continued the final hearing on pg and proposed $5.5 billion dip financing to late March in order to give the parties an opportunity to negotiate a compromise addressing the court's concerns. The subject of those concerns was automatic stay relief following the occurrence of an event of default under the dip credit agreement. Judge Montali indicated that he would not, quote, second guess any compromise reached by the principal parties and would rule on March 27th absent any compromise. The dip credit agreement requires the debtors to obtain entry of a final dip order by April 15th. Judge Montali on Wednesday also denied the request of certain California public entities to appoint an official public entities committee. The judge concluded that he did not have the statutory authority to appoint the requested committee under Bankruptcy Code Section 1102 because the proposed members would be entities that are excluded from the definition of persons in Section 101 of the Bankruptcy Code. Earlier in the week, the Sonoma County District Attorney, together with the District Attorneys for Napa, Humboldt, and Lake Counties, announced that no criminal charges would be filed against PG&E related to the October 2017 Northern California wildfires, stating that each office determined that, quote, insufficient evidence exists to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that PG&E acted with a reckless disregard for human life in causing the fires.
1: On the island of Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority on Monday released the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan dated March 10th. Similar to the previous version, the new fiscal plan stated that, quote, Puerto Rico cannot afford to meet all its contractual debt obligations, even with the aggressive implementation of structural reforms and fiscal measures. The new fiscal plan draft forecasts a pre-contractual debt service surplus totaling $12.3 billion over the six-year period from fiscal 2019 through fiscal 2024, down from roughly $17 billion in the October 23 fiscal plan and projects a pre-contractual deficit after fiscal measures and structural reforms beginning in fiscal year 2035, one year later than the existing certified plan. The revision also expects structural reforms to have a $993 million impact in the six-year period, while fiscal measures are expected to create $7.53 billion in cost savings and extra revenue over six years down from the approximately $12.4 billion through fiscal year 2023 in the October th- 23rd version. In Title III matters, on Tuesday, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed an omnibus objection to all claims asserted against the employee's retirement system of the government of Puerto Rico based on the approximately $3.1 billion of outstanding bonds issued by ERS in 2008. The UCC argued that the issuance of the bonds, quote, was illegally made in that the ERS bonds were issued ultra vires. The bonds were therefore, quote, null and void, the objection argues. The bondholders, quote, have no remedy against ERS, and all claims against ERS based on the bonds, quote, must be disallowed in their entirety. In a related filing, the UCC said that it will propose that the deadline to file a substantive response to the objection be suspended, pending the court's consideration of the procedures motion, which is scheduled to be heard at the April 24th omnibus hearing. Also in the Title III proceedings, during Wednesday's omnibus hearing, Martin Bienenstock of Proskauer-Rose for the Promesa Oversight Board said that the board hopes to present a Commonwealth plan of adjustment by the end of April, if it can garner sufficient creditor support. However, Mark Stansel of Robbins-Russell, on behalf of the Ad Hoc Group of General Obligation Bondholders, said that while he agreed with the need for expediency, the Oversight Board's path toward a plan of adjustment is unrealistic and, quote, premised on litigation. He added that there has been, quote, "...no engagement and no meaningful progress toward a consensual plan of adjustment." Bean Stock told Judge Laura Taylor Swain during the hearing that the board planned to appeal to the United States Supreme Court not only the First Circuit Appointments Clause ruling, as previously announced, but also the First Circuit ruling relating to ERS bonds. Other top red stories of the week were Primary Analysis Johnson Controls Plans, Documents, Amendments After Investors Flag Aggressive Terms Frontier announces $1.65 billion first lien notes offering and expected credit agreement amendment. Windstream UCC selects Morrison and Forster as counsel. Next, here's Jim Holloway in Houston with the week ahead.
2: Well, thanks, Connor, and good evening or morning wherever you are. And as always, thank you all for listening in. Good news, folks. The worst of the earnings hurricane seems to be behind us. That said, on Monday, March 18th, there may be earnings from Unity, matters regarding which my colleague Karen mentioned earlier in the broadcast. There is an early tender deadline in Chesapeake's Senior Notes tender offer and the expiration of Monotronics Parent Ascent's tender for its 4% converts. And for all you Juris Doctors, there is a status conference in Exco. And the first day hearing for PHI Incorporated, the helicopter company based in Lafayette, Louisiana. That's the heart of Acadiana, by the way, Cajun country. My grandma, God rest her, was born just south of there. Back in old times, saw Huey Long himself, the Kingfisher, on the stump. Unfortunately, the first day hearing in PHIs in Dallas. Not Lafayette. Regarding Dallas, personally, I prefer the Fort Worth side of the metroplex. That's me. Moving right along, Tuesday, March 19th, a DSRSA hearing in First Energy. Wednesday, March 20th, a confirmation hearing in Brookstone and fourth quarter earnings and a call from Jay Crew. Thursday, March 21st, a hearing in Sears related to the debtor's motion to enforce the asset purchase agreement with Transform Hold Co., a motion which was joined last week by the UCC. There's also the expiration of a tender offer and consent solicitation from Bausch, the Canadian pharmaceutical company once known as Valiant. Plus, there are earnings and a call from Talon Energy, an independent power producer in the Northeast. And finally, on March 22nd in Puerto Rico, there's a final hearing related to the ERS stay relief. And that's all. Back to you, Connor.
1: Thank you, Jim. And now here's our own Jason Sanjana with Kirkland & Ellis partner, John Hennes.
3: Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Sanjana, Senior Editor at Reorg. I'm joined today by John Hennes, a partner at Kirkland & Ellis' Restructuring Practice. We're going to speak today about the Full Beauty case, which now holds the record for the speediest prepackaged plan confirmation in U.S. history, being confirmed by Judge Robert Drain in the afternoon of Monday, February 4th, after filing its bankruptcy petitions the evening of Sunday, February 3rd. Just to provide some broad context, Full Beauty was a true prepack, meaning the plan was solicited to voting classes prior to the petition date. Pre-packs and the broader category of pre-negotiated cases, meaning those where an RSA is negotiated ahead of, ahead of time, but the plan isn't actually solicited, now make up a majority of large cases. True prepackaged plans tend to have a good amount of consensus and can move quickly, but as we'll discuss, those that last less than a few days are rare. Thanks for joining us, John. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, to start off, can you explain for our listeners what exactly made the Full Beauty Case Timeline special? All situations are different, of course. But can you describe the time frame of a more traditional standard prepack versus Full Beauty and the few other cases that have exited bankruptcy within days of filing?
4: Yeah. um, So to get a a prepack done uh, as quickly as we did, uh, you really need the stars to align. Uh, And what I mean by that is we had um, Full Beauty was a retail company, but did not have any stores. uh, So we didn't have to deal with landlords. Um, We were able to pre solicitation, uh, get a deal done with uh, well over 90% of our first lien and second lien holders and our sponsor. Uh, And then when we actually went out and did our pre-petition solicitation, we were able to get 100% of our creditors that were voting on the plan to vote yes. uh, And we were not impairing any other creditors, right? So all other creditors were were not impacted by the bankruptcy case. Um, And based on all of that, um, that was kind of step one for setting it up for a very fast uh, confirmation and exit from bankruptcy. Step two was we had uh, the ability to file in White Plains in front of Judge Drain. Uh, We had venue there. And because there's only one judge in White Plains, we obviously knew exactly what court we were going to be in. so we were able to speak to Judge Drain's clerk and get uh, a date for a hearing. So when we did solicit, we were able to put in our notice to every to all creditors. uh, And when we did our press release that we were intending to have a confirmation hearing on uh, the 4th. The third thing that we really needed was the judge to be able to review all of the pleadings prior to our filing, and that posed one issue, which was the judge, uh, and we heard this through the judge's clerk, did not want to review any documents until they were public. Uh, one of my one of our associates had the idea, a uh, very ingenious idea, to. Uh, post all of our draft pleadings the Friday before um, we were the Sunday that we were going to file on our claims agent's website that was Prime Clerk, um, and once those were posted, they were all public. Uh, the clerk said that was good enough for the judge, and so we were able to get the judge all of our pleadings on that Friday, and which gave the judge the entire weekend to to review them all. So having all three of those things in place allowed us to walk in uh, the morning of, or the afternoon, I should say, of the 4th uh, and get the plan confirmed in, in, uh, in under 21 hours.
3: Uh, thanks so much. That's super interesting. And, and as far as, uh, and especially about the notice you provided to Judge Drain, um, I think that's something on Reorg's end we were wondering about, but didn't know until we spoke to you. Um, for, for creditors and, and those voting on the plan and, uh, and at least um, being subject to those, those motions that were posted the, the Friday before the petition, uh, how did you handle the notice uh, uh, for, for all those parties? Uh, because I know notice is a huge issue for these, for these sorts of cases that are moving very quickly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Notice is, and it's obviously critically important because due process uh, for all parties impacted by the case is critically important. Um, What we did, we decided that we were going to provide more notice than necessary. Uh, So what we did was we sent actual notice uh, to all creditors that needed to vote on the plan as well as to all governmental agencies that, uh, that would be impacted or, or that needed to be notified, uh, and to our top 30 largest unsecured creditors, even though they were not going to be impacted by the case. And, and then we also published notice, uh, both in the U.S. and internationally, so in the Wall Street Journal and in the Financial Times International Edition, to allow um, for uh, parties to have published notice. And then as we uh, filed things and, and put documents on the Prime clerk website, we would allow the parties, we would provide no, we provided notice of that to the parties who were going to be impacted by the case. So we, uh, we made sure that we provided notice every step of the way uh, because the one thing that we did not want was someone to be able to come in and say and try to say that we did not provide due process. Um, and that was not an argument that anybody made.
3: Okay, and then uh, just stepping back for one second, uh, could you sort of go over for our listeners the time frame of a of, of call it a more traditional uh, prepack where we're talking about a true prepack that's solicited ahead of time, maybe fully solicited, but um, comes into bankruptcy uh, asking for uh, what would you say a few weeks, uh, a
4: month? Uh, e- yeah. What, what we would tend to tell a client would be if we have a real prepack. And so just to define, <clears throat> excuse me, to define a real prepack uh, that we have our impaired creditors under the plan voting. And generally those would be funded debt holders. So you're talking about banks and hedge funds that own the company's debt and leaving all other creditors unimpaired. Um, what we would say to a client is the traditional way to do that would be you can go out on 14 days notice to those parties that uh, will be impaired and will vote uh, to get their, their affirmative votes on the plan. So that would be the prepackaged solicitation. Then you file, and because you have not given notice to all the parties that are unimpaired, you would then give um, traditionally the 28 days notice um, of your combined plan and disclosure statement hearing. so that would be a traditional prepackaged bankruptcy. Um, there's other ways to shorten that 28 days notice. Uh, you could go into court and say to the, the judge um, that because we because the cl- they, the company has already gone out with 14 days notice to its impaired creditors and the other unsecured creditors are, the other creditors are unimpaired, uh, you want to shorten notice for a certain period of time and, and provide the judge with a reason to do that. Um, So that would be kind of another, a non-traditional way, but a way to shorten notice. Um, And then the way we did it, uh, which was to do the full 28 days notice to everyone outside of court.
3: Yeah. That, Um, that that was um, interesting for us uh, in the actual confirmation hearing. Um, it, the United States trustee, I, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of was arguing that you should show those sort of factors that you would normally have to show for a, a, a height or a more speedy process or something that shortcut the the, the statutorily required notice periods. But uh, you and uh, Judge Drain, I think, agreed that all of the notice was accomplished pre petition and with the full statutory notice periods, so there wasn't actually a requirement for a heightened showing of urgency?
4: That's correct. The, uh, the United States Trustee's position is that you need to actually provide the notice required under the bankruptcy code once you file for bankruptcy. Uh, that obviously was not our position and was not the judge's position. Um, the judge's position was that based on the prepackaged bankruptcy guidelines that all of the notice uh, can be done outside of court and then uh, you do not have to demonstrate cause or a, a need for uh, a, a one-day hearing. Uh, you just have to meet the requirements that are in the bankruptcy code and the bankruptcy rules and the and the uh, prepackaged, bankruptcy guidelines out of court, and you can walk in and get that that hearing on day one.
3: And and um, as far as Judge Drain's additional sort of requirement that the things he review be public, um, is is do you think that was sort of just a judicial determination on his part as what he's comfortable with, or, or is that something that was founded in the code?
4: That's not in the code. I just think it's um, good judgment, obviously, by the judge, which is he he would not want to be looking at documents that no one else has seen or would have the ability to see. Um, and I think that that makes a hundred percent sense. And so he wanted to make sure, you know, once one, obviously once a document is public and any person can go, uh, get that document and review it, he felt comfortable reviewing it. And, um, Now, uh,
3: switching gears just a little bit, um, I was hoping you could speak uh, to the costs and benefits um, for uh, debtors selecting to go this route, if if the stars align, like you in your terms, um, to 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 be able to uh, try to attempt a a super speedy process like this. Um, What what do you think the costs and the benefits are versus doing some notice ahead of time and more notice in, in, in? inside of bankruptcy, if, if
4: ultimately the, the days are somewhat the same? Sure. So bankruptcy um, in general, right, is an expensive process. Um, and I'm going to answer your question, but I'm just going to give a little bit of a broad kind of background first. You know, bankruptcy is an expensive process uh, in general, and in general, what you use a bankruptcy for, uh, forgetting about a prepackaged bankruptcy, is it it provides a company with a breathing spell to get into a process where it can bring all of its creditors together and to to negotiate an overall deal. And while it's negotiating that deal, it can also fix some of the issues the business is having. So for instance, In a traditional bankruptcy, there will be leases and contracts that are burdensome to the company, and the company wants to get out of those leases and contracts and it can reject them in a bankruptcy case. Or you may want to sell a certain amount, some non core assets through the bankruptcy. And a company just won't have time to do it out of court or won't have the tools to do it out of court. So that traditionally, you can get into a bankruptcy and really fix the business. Um, when you do a pre-arranged or, or a pre-pack a traditional pre-packaged bankruptcy, that's obviously much better for the company if you can get there, right? So that will mean there's not a lot to fix other than the capital structure. And if you can do that, it saves, obviously, a lot of the cost. You don't have a creditor's committee because all unsecured creditors are, are being paid in full or, or otherwise unimpacted. Um, and so all you have to do is get it through the court process. Um, again, what we would say to a client is, even, you never know what's going to happen in a bankruptcy case. So if you do file it and then have to send out notice during the case, Um, There's always the opportunity that somebody could come in um, and raise issues. Um, But regardless, there's going to be a cost to those, even those 30 days where you're in bankruptcy and now you need to go through the notice process again. You need to go and um, go to hearings or at least one hearing and have that done. So it's not a huge cost, but there's a cost. I think more importantly is the business side. So if you take Full Beauty, Um, Much and this happens with a lot of retail companies, a lot of the vendors um, are overseas uh, and a lot of them in China. What you hear from a lot of the vendors is that to the extent they hear the word bankruptcy, they just stop shipping. That obviously can have a big impact on a company. So to do it all out of court with excellent communication and excellent notice, um, that allows, you know, you're not filing for bankruptcy. The hope is that you continue to get those goods that you need from your, your international vendors. And then by the time you file and get the plan confirmed, you know, no one even, you know, no one even noticed because you're in and out so quickly. So in full beauty, you know, we were in and out of bankruptcy in 81 hours. Um, and that, Yeah. So that was a huge benefit. If we had had to have been in bankruptcy for 28 days, would that have been the end of the world? Definitely not. But there would have been additional costs to the company. And if they did, if vendors stopped shipping, that would have obviously held up the ability to um, for the company to operate in its in the ordinary course. Until we got the company out and got the shipping, uh got the shipments back.
3: And um just for practitioners, uh you, you pointed Judge Drain to Global A and T and Roost, um and then there was the two thousand and six uh Bluebird case in Nevada. Uh would you say those are the three cases so far that have um taken this approach? Uh I, I keep calling it super speedy. I don't know if there's a better term, but uh would it be those three cases? Was there any, were there any others that you guys found?
4: Now those are the three. Those are the three that um, that we've found um, and that we have seen, and you know all three of those had unique issues and and unique circumstances to allow uh, for a super speedy, uh, as you call it, bankruptcy. Um, and I, I think that we may see more of these. Uh, I think at any time you're going to do a prepack, it's something to consider uh, because it is better for the company itself to just, uh, you know, get in and out as fast as possible. And I think people are going to look at it more. But like I said, right in the beginning, you do need to have the right facts and circumstances, or as I said, the stars need to align to make it work. Uh, But- there are there are uh, situations where you could you could make it happen but I, I will say this um, you know people have been asking since since we got this done you know could you do it in other jurisdictions and I think the answer is you could but you do need to know that you, you need to know what judge you're going to get so you can get to the judge the documents uh, and a court hearing date uh, that you know, w- well prior to when you're going to file for bankruptcy, so everybody knows when they can come into court if they have any issues, um, and the, so the judge can review everything. On,
3: on that point, is it a um, is it a sort of function of geography that you have certain districts with, call them ancillary courts like White Plains that might have a single judge, um, or is it uh, the type of thing where a another district, say the District of Delaware, could Put in place procedures to tell you who the judge is ahead of time.
4: That's an interesting point. So, first, for answering the first question, you would need. So, right now, currently, um, White Plains, you could file, or if you look at Bluebird, you know where they filed in Nevada. I believe there was only one judge there um, in in that district. Um, you know, in Houston. You, know, you have two judges, so you might be able to uh, reach out to the clerks and say, There's a prepack coming. Is there a way for us to find out who, which judge we could have and we could set up a hearing date? Um, and there's definitely other jurisdictions out there where you only have you know, one or two judges in that district. Um, if you take Delaware, Delaware would be a difficult jurisdiction right now to, to get that 24 hour bankruptcy done solely because. Um, you don't know what judge you're going to get. So you would have to be able to call the clerks and, and let them know, uh, you know, in 28 or 35 days from now, we're going to be filing a prepack in Delaware. And we need to know when we could have a hearing, uh, what time and what judge, so we can let everybody know now when we go out with our initial notice. Uh, and, you know, they, so they, they could do that. And then to your second point, I guess courts could set it up and say, you know, to the extent that you're going to file a prepack, you know, this is the judge who hears prepacks or this is the clerk to call who will arrange it with you. Uh, that could be set up to help, uh, to help uh, make that process more efficient in other jurisdictions.
3: And I guess, uh, the, the follow on point there is, is probably, uh, the United States trustees office would have to come around, uh, do you get the sense that they, I guess they objected in all of the recent cases and were overruled? Um, There's not been an appeal unless, uh, uh, and I think that time has run. Uh, Do you you have any sense of where the United States Trustees Office is on, on this as far as how much of a objection point it's going to be going forward if if this is a, a trend, like you
4: said? So I would anticipate that the U.S. Trustee's Office uh, in, in most jurisdictions will continue to object uh, and make the same objections. I, I think they have the good faith view that their position is the correct position. And so I don't I don't see um, I don't see the United States Trustee's Office. Uh, agreeing to this the process that we did in full beauty and in other cases i will say this though because i just always think that this is important since we we live in a restructuring world that can be sometimes kind of brass knuckled and and difficult you know the united states trustee's office despite the objections um as i i think i said to you when we spoke earlier I mean they they reached out to us and worked with us, and we narrowed the obje- objections down significantly because they had uh, a number of questions about our plan and how we were treating different parties and wanted to make sure they understood it. And once they understood it and and many times uh, through that process helped us actually articulate our position a little bit better, uh, they they dropped the objections that they otherwise would have had and narrowed it down to the three that they. Um, they eventually argued, uh, but I, I don't see, I don't see the issue of whether you can solicit out of court or you need to do it in court going away for the U S trustee's office. Um, but I think it's a good faith objection and, uh, we'll see, you know, if it happens in other jurisdictions, how those judges will rule on it.
3: Yeah. And, and the interesting thing too, is it, it would seem that it's, it's not, um, it's not the type of issue that the United States trustees office would, or maybe even could appeal. So it's hard to see how, um, I don't know if you can think of a similar issue in the past that's ultimately been resolved, but with absent sort of circuit, uh, higher court guidance, uh, uh, it, it seems like it, 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 I guess what you're saying is that it could be one of these things where the U S trustee continues to object, um, and practice continues to move on and, and, People understand what they're doing.
4: Yeah, I think that we we now know that um, based on uh, based on Rouse, based on Gate, we we now know Judge Drain's views on this issue. So, to the extent that uh, a company has the ability to file in White Plains, the you know there's a lot of clarity around how the judge will rule. The, we we haven't seen um, other than in Utah, a another one of these cases. So, uh, if it does happen in Delaware or, or Houston or Pittsburgh or another jurisdiction, uh, a judge could view the U.S. trustee's arguments more favorably. Um, you know, it could require more notice. So, you know, that we'll have to see how it plays out to the extent that that a company files uh, tries to file a. Uh, super speedy prepack in uh, mm-hmm. in another jurisdiction.
3: All right, great. Thanks so much. And and um, this has all been super interesting and I know our listeners will appreciate it. Uh, just a last question to kind of wrap up. Um, it, it doesn't seem like a case can go any faster uh, than, than the, you know, petition date, essentially uh, a confirmation hearing. Uh, so are there other aspects of uh, prepackaged practice or plans that you think might, uh, wh- what's the next, um, move in, in, in this world if there is one, uh,
4: since time, since essentially this is about as fast as it could possibly be. Yeah. I mean, other than, other than it being faster, which I guess you could get it faster. Um, I don't see a lot of, uh, anything new in the prepackaged world. I, I do think that based on the conversations that I- I've had since, uh, since we confirmed the plan and it emerged. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of practitioners focused on it now and some companies. I, I mean, I, I've have, I've, I have a client uh, that I'm working with that has asked, you know, well, can we do a 24 hour prepack? So I think clients will ask that. And there may be more of a focus on trying to get, get prepacks done more quickly. Um, but, you know, I, and I, I'm sure there's people out there that uh, would love to uh, to break the record, you know, and do it even faster.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess the race will continue. Um, thank you so much, John, for joining us. Um, uh, we hope to speak with you again and uh, congratulations on being the current record holder. We'll see uh, who goes after it next.
4: All
1: right, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. That's another week. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been the Week in Reorg. I'm Connor Skelding.